And we're live. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, we're going to let our guest, Mr. Rick Shaw, introduce himself. So, sir, can you tell your, uh, our audience of listeners and viewers who you are and what you're famous for? I have done that fun and dysfunction. I like that. <laughs> uh, my name is Rick Shaw. I am, uh, well, until this past November, I was a technology director and CIO in higher education. I spent 35 years running IT shops in the California University System, the University of California System, and a couple of community college uh, districts. I also spent five years running IT in the magazine and uh, internet media business. Um, uh, evenings and weekends for the last 15 years or so, I've written sci-fi. Uh, sci-fi, adventure, thriller, that sort of thing. Um, when I retired, I retired with the intention of consulting a little on the side and writing more. And I've been successful at that in that I published my first novel, uh, last month, the Tunguska Deception, uh, which is a combination of alien possession, adventure, and alt history. Uh, in addition to that, I've got uh, three short stories out there in three different anthologies, two of them in Bayonet book on anthologies. They're good stories, too. So, you know, because you worked in IT and you helped program computery things, uh, are you worried about the robot overlords? Um... Well, I have a couple of wind chimes hanging, so I can frighten off the, the cyborgs. Um, <laughs> um, I am not as concerned about the AI world as some of my colleagues are. I view it as a tool, like any other tool. Um, uh, some of that comes out of my higher ed and intellectual curiosity. I'm curious to see what they're going to be capable of doing. I know some folks are really concerned about chat GPT and it having built much of its back end off of slurping stuff off the internet and potential copyright violations. And that's certainly a concern, um, but things are evolving so quickly that it's gonna be real interesting to see how it sifts out. Do you think full sentience um, is going to be possible with robots? Because where does algorithm end and true thought begin? I don't know the answer well, to that one. We don't necessarily have sentience walking around the planet now. Very true. Um, I've met a few. You know, <laughs> if one of my dad's favorite lines was, if sense was so common, we'd have nothing to laugh at. Um, mm. I've heard the stories about the couple or three AIs that Google was running that developed their own language that they unplugged them. Um, I don't know if that's hype or, or real. Um, right now, AIs really aren't thinking for themselves. They're simply following a very complex if then tree. Um, I don't know that we're capable of programming something to do that. Are they capable of programming this programming themselves to do that? I don't think so. Um, but like I said, it's going to be real interesting to see how it sifts. Did you follow the um, Air Force thought experiment where they ran the simulation with the AI? I so basically, 
they they basically they created a, a system to manage. So one of the big things in um, computers in general, and and it works with people too. I use it on myself. Is the concept of gamification. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Mm -hmm. Very. So cool. they created a gamification where the robot got more points, or the AI that was running the drone to target uh, SAM battery, so anti-air missile sites that would, in theory, in a future war, would be dangerous to our our fighters and our bombers. And so the the, the drone's job was to go hunt these down and destroy them. And it right. got more points for uh, destroying them, you know, and that it's sort of a gamification um, algorithmic model. Uh, and But it was controlled by a human who was running interference for the drone, while the human was saying, when it looks at the oversight said, oh, that one's going to destroy, you know, too many civilians, it's unacceptable, whatever, and it, it would skip the, the site. Was the was the thinking behind the soldier or the airman? Excuse me, operating it. Well, right. at that point in time, the the AI went rogue that was running the simulation for the drone and said, "Well, if I get more points for destroying SAM batteries, and this human over here is preventing me from destroying them, let's destroy my handler and then go back to destroying the SAM batteries." Now, it didn't actually happen. It was all computer run simulation, but I followed that and I was like, "Oh, okay." That's that I don't even know if that's full sentience or if it was just a complicated if then tree and then they stepped in the middle of what they created kind of thing. That's that's real interesting. A friend of mine from grad school uh, back in the 90s uh, went on to work at the Air Force Academy and in their war college uh, building games um, and teaching history. Um, and I'm going to have to drop Mike a note and see what he knows about that. That's real interesting. Well, I know as soon as they announced that the Air Force did a quick because the, the article got a lot of play and then the uh, the Air Force was like, oh, no, 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 no. This was a simulation. None of this really happened because people were freaking out. Erase, erase. Yeah. I think what it came down to is the guy, If you when you when you knew what happened and you reread the, the major who talked to the press's statement, um, uh, it made sense, but but he just was so inarticulate that I get the um, I get what people were worried about, you know. Sure. But yeah. Um, but yeah, it was definitely interesting. I, I I don't know that we're gonna ever get you know full uh, mechanical sentience, but I'm not a, I'm not convinced otherwise. I do think if you teach the machine to learn on its own, then all things are possible. And who knows what happens when it has full access to all the code out there on the interwebs. Because, mm -hmm. you know, when you can Frankenstein your own code, even if it's not truly sentient, we just can't understand it because its code is so labyrinth, right? Like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know where that those lines all begin, but it'll definitely be an interesting time to be alive. Be very interesting. I, had I remember. Every, my academic career, I had every intention of doing a PhD in teaching history. Um, yeah. But I was a working student, which is how I ended up in technology. Um. So it's it's interesting to look at the technology trends through the lens of history. Yeah. And and you know the sky is falling the sky is falling the kids are watching TV. Um, I mean I remember the satanic panic with a few books and an RPG game. Oh yeah. So, so the the I, I tend to have um, a different different perspective than some folks I guess. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it'll be an interesting time. I remember, so I was a, a history major, although my focus at grad school was colonial American history, uh, mostly because I found some of the medieval stuff interesting, but I'm not great with languages. I barely made it through, you know, modern German for my my minimum required classes. Um, 
And so I was like, well, if I study American history, I don't have to learn a foreign language. Because even if you go to European history, the English, you know, pre-Saxon. Well, you still got to do French because it was the language of diplomacy for four centuries. Well, not only that, but then you've got Old Norse, Old English, which is a combination okay. of the two, Old German. Like you've got to start learning. And if you've ever listened to um, what Old English sounds like or Middle English, oh, yeah. uh, it's 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 a whole new language. They're, they sound similar sometimes. So I studied. Go ahead. I was having that conversation with a colleague who's a writer. Also, we were brainstorming a story he's working on. He's trying to do something far future. And I said, remember, you're talking about a thousand years down the road. Think about the difference in the evolution of English in just the time from Chaucer and Middle English to now. And what it may or may not do, just keep that in mind as you're trying, you're going to have to develop a whole new language or a conceptual construct. Um, and, and his mind just started spinning. It was, it was, it got him going, oh yeah, and he's scribbling notes. So uh, one of the things you learn is if you've ever heard Shakespeare in the original Middle English, people don't give him credit for how lyrical everything sounded. It was oh, almost yeah. like music when you listen oh, to yeah. the, the way he turned the phrase. And so when people are struggling with it in English, I'm just, it'd be interesting to see if someone could translate it in such a way that you got that lyricality with it. I don't know that it's possible. And then just the conversion of language with the word, the way words mean. But because I didn't want to learn all those languages, because like I said, I struggled with modern, I tried Spanish and I couldn't roll my R's, but with German, you just got to sound angry and like you're about to spit on somebody and you can make the, the noises mostly. Um, mm -hmm. And so I said, well, so much for medieval, let's study colonial America. Cause that's all English. I understand. I mean, the hardest part of that is reading the old typeface where the F's look like S's and stuff in the old print. But I mean, that's that's kind of easy to compensate for. But uh, I had a per go ahead. One of my one of my earlier professors, uh, his all of his relatives came over from Scandinavia in the 17th century. Um, and he had a whole stack of letters from his relatives um, and was having to translate them from five year you know, 400 year old Scandinavian uh, Swedish, uh, which was a real challenge for him. Um, but that treasure trove of letters was his dissertation. Wow. Okay. So one of my professors, though, uh, was telling us that old expression, may you live in interesting times. And we asked him what it meant. And he said, when you're old enough to understand, you'll wish you didn't. But for now, <laughs> you know, asking your ignorance. And now I understand as I watch the world around me burn. And I'm like, I hate that SOB because he was right. <laughs> I spent I spent a semester in the People's Republic of China. Um, my, my graduate advisor accused me of being intellectually fickle. Um, because my interests ran from the American empire, late 19th, early 20th century, Teddy Roosevelt, that sort of thing, right. uh, manifest destiny, um, to modern Middle Eastern history and modern Chinese history. Um, and as an undergrad, I got to travel with 40 other students, uh, to the PRC for a semester. And it was eye-opening just the, I had two or three, we stayed at a university in the city of Jinan in the uh, province of Shandong. And I had two or three conversations with American history students from a Chinese university. Oh, and the vast, I mean, radically different perspective of the same events and the same facts. 
um, were, I mean, uh, lots, lots and lots of beer and other alcohol were consumed as we were debating things. We'll just leave it at that. You get a kick out of this then. So when I first signed, my first publishing contract was with Tim C. Taylor, and um, I think he used to be Greyheart Press, and then he just went under his Human Legion Press. But so at the time, this was DocuSign wasn't really a thing in 2016, so you had to have print copies where you had to sign in person, like sign it sure. in print. Yeah, and so I sent that to him in, the, in UPS or FedEx or whoever mails international lost it. So they're like, well, we'll let you – you know, won't stress the weight as much. Just, you know, we'll get it over there. Because I told him, I said, this is a contract. This is a time I paid, to, you know, to not quite overnight, but, you know, close. And so because it was close to the 4th of July and because I knew I wasn't paying for the extra weight, I sent him a, a Lipton's tea bag and, uh, and signed a little note. I said, was visiting Boston, stopped by the harbor, found this, thought you might want it back. Because <laughs> the, day before, the day before I sent that, he sent me the happy colonial treason happy day. Treason and then, day. Yeah. yeah, with a few uh, expletives that the Brits are famous for that uh, will get me censored on the, uh, <laughs> the platforms. So we'll just... It starts with a C and a T. Those are the kinds of Britishisms that yep. uh, they use those words like we use the F-bombs. Yep, they do. It's funny what, what is censored in some places and not in others when it comes to curse words and where the lines are of this is acceptable over here. Nope, they uh, certainly do. Like we're, we're, they're way more uh, censorious in Europe with uh, with guns and stuff, but they'll show nudity on daytime television with no pro no thoughts. We're the exact inverse. You know, you want to kill somebody on daytime television, blow them up and show all the gore. You're totally okay. Show a boob. Ooh, boy, that better be after nine o'clock and you're giving an X rating. You know, it's, well, I mean, obviously not X, but like, it's, it's funny where all those cultural lines are. Oh yeah. When in theory, we're all Western nations and should be similar. Oh no. The, the, the prudish nature of much of American culture um fascinates me uh it just it makes makes no sense to me at all but i grew up in southern california which has a very different set of sensibilities from the plain states or the bible bumping south yeah or even just the east coast in general oh yeah because we got the puritans that settled up north um do you read academic books still for fun like uh, textbooks on history and the like i have okay. a whole shelf of them behind me have you read or heard of Albion Seed? L-B and C? Albion, A-L-B-I-O-N. It is um, a book. It's a tome. It's like a mm, thousand pages or so. And it is about the um, the creation of America, really. It's Albion Seed, A-L-B-I-O-N-S. And then Seed, it's uh, four British, British folkways in America. And basically it studies the four different british cultures that came over and it traces the dichotomy in american culture to the um british or the um the the civil war in britain which was in what a 1200s or something i'm not a huge british history cromwell. but i mean it cromwell yeah it goes all the way back to cromwell and how the cultural divide with the anglicans and the catholics and the protestants and and how all of that factored into where american culture came and where they settled and it's 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 fascinating how some of that stuff plays the long arm, and, which ties into fiction because everyone, you know, you write a story and you'll have, oh, well, this character, you know, make one passing reference to one incident that happened in this fictional history, and then they let it go without thinking, well, if that did happen, what would be the knock-on effects? Like, you know, if this, then what? Is uh is the is something nobody ever really, I don't think, well, not nobody, but a lot of people don't think enough of when they when they design their worlds. 
Yeah, no, I have so, that on my shelf back here. It's just one of those I haven't cracked yet. Uh, I heard a review of it and it made me curious. I hadn't heard of it. I've read some of the other books that were mentioned in its footnotes, but not that one. Um, but I'm, it's, it sounded interesting enough. I'm like, I wonder if that's an audio book. <laughs> uh, something to listen to while I'm on my walk. But before we get too uh, in the weeds, because uh, you sound like you're just as nerdy as I am, but we're going far afield from the speculative fiction. Uh, we, we're going to ask you, we're going to do a blunt force segue, the religion question. Are you ready for this, sir? Go for it. Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? Firefly all the way. All right. What is it about Firefly that speaks to you? I like the cyber Western. I like the dystopian Western. Did you grow up uh, on spaghetti Westerns and the, the John Wayne and Louis L'Amour and all that? Um, no, more um, uh, Clint Eastwood and and uh, Eli Wallach. Um, uh, good, the bad, and the ugly for a few dollars more. Um, yeah. Sergio Leone. Is it Sergio Leone? You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you, you later, did watch the classics, though. You know, and then and then later the revival of the western with with Silverado and some of the others. So if you like the western and you like the space western, does that mean you preferred Star Wars over Star Trek for that reason? Because Star Wars is really space western, space fantasy. Um, with you look at the plot organization and you know no, the farm boy. Well, no, it's 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 Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. Um, more than it's it's the farm boy western can't keep him down on the farm, um, and I I'm old enough to remember some of the first run Star Trek on NBC. Okay. Um, so no, if I'm picking one over the other, it's Star Trek over Star Wars. Maybe it's uh because I was born in the '80s, so I'm a product of the '90s. When I think Star Trek, I think the Next Generation. And yep. Q just ruined that series for me. He was the most annoying. And Diana Troy, what a useless character. I mean, I get it. She was there to be eye candy, but oh my goodness. Uh, they it took them a good two seasons to really figure out who they were. Uh, it's a good thing they had a long run because if if they had had to try and exist on who they were within the first four or five episodes, they'd have been canned. I remember my grandfather, uh, Grandpa Henley, you know, he was a, a combat World War II veteran. Uh, when he saw there was one episode in the early season where they were like mocking the Marine Corps. I can't remember which one. It's one of the first season. He's like, nope, this series is dead to me. And I'm like, <laughs> come on, Grandpa, give it a chance. But he he just couldn't get past that. Right? Now, he he liked the original Star Trek, which is why he watched and we watched some of it together, the, um, the next generation. But he just couldn't get in because – I will say the first season, for all it had its political slants, it was a little less on the nose with it than The Next Generation was. It's a lot more subtle, I think. Uh, and maybe that's just, uh, it's not culturally relevant for me, so I have to think about what it was talking about in the period. Maybe people that watched it when it was, who were old enough to remember and understand the world around them as they watched it live, maybe they saw more of it than we do watching it in retrospect. Who knows? That's possible. Um, I, I imagine some of the cultural... Uh, references are lost on on modern watchers, so that that's possible. Yeah. But I just I just remember watching uh, the early seasons of the Next Generation, and Grandpa was like, "Nope, I'm out." <laughs> yeah, no, my dad was a South Pacific Marine as well. Um, he was uh, he enlisted November of '41, a couple days after his birthday. So he was at Paris Island for Pearl. 
um, and was part of Operation Shoestring into the Solomons. Uh, he was a fighter engine mechanic um, and got uh, pressed into tail gunner duty with SBDs. Okay. Um, so my grandfather was Army, but he had to have someone stand on the scale behind him to push down on it enough so he weighed enough to get in. Uh, which was more of a concern. Uh, apparently, because nutrition was such an issue in World War One or World War One and Two, excuse me, a lot of the people that enlisted gained height and weight when they went through training because they were finally eating like calorically balanced meals. It um, doesn't surprise me at all. So, which is why when you think of the evolution of like logistics and field rations and how that came about to to compensate. But anyway, again, we're getting. I'm gonna I'm gonna get far afield because I love all the history stuff too. But this is not a history podcast. Uh, we have the hardcore history for that. I listen. Do you listen to that one too? Oh, I love Dan Carlin. Yeah, that guy's awesome. If I could Dan, find I an love, excuse to I have him on the show, episodes too. Yeah. So, uh, because we are polytheistic here at the Blasters and Blades podcast, Game of Thrones, The Wheel of Time, or Lord of the Rings. Oh, my wife will throw a book at me. Um, I loved the series of of Game of Thrones. I couldn't finish the first book. Okay. Um, uh, Martin's writing. I loved the notion of of structuring it chapter by chapter with a different character's POV, but his writing was just so dense. Um, it, it, and along that same line, I finished The Hobbit. I finished LOTR. I couldn't finish Two Towers. Um, okay. And I've never read any of Wheel of Time. Okay, so what's your uh, what's your defining um, choice when it comes to fantasy as a genre? Then, oh, um, I don't read much fantasy. Um, I really don't. Lori's Lori's the fantasy junkie here at the house. And if you look at her, it's her bookshelves and my bookshelves, and they're very different. <laughs> um, do you organize them differently? Um, well, to suggest that mine are organized at all would be a stretch. Um, where she has hers all by author and then chronologically by release. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, I love um, I love historical fiction. I mean, okay, Ken Follett fan. Um, I Bernard love Crom Cornwell, Cromwell. Um, no, I haven't read much of Patricia Cromwell stuff. Um, although I loved um, uh, Sarum uh, Rutherford. Um, if you've not read that, I highly recommend it. Um, it takes a really interesting approach in that it covers almost an eon of time of human occupation in the Salisbury Plain. And okay. in many ways, it identifies the characters by physical characteristic. So you follow family lines by the, the family with the curly hair and the family with the long toes and that kind of thing. Um, and it's, it's a brilliant read. I thoroughly recommend it. Um, I love Ken Follett's uh, um, Kingsbridge uh, series. Um, I think. Pillars of the Earth is probably the best piece of historical fiction I've ever read. Um, uh, some of his successive books built around that 
um, are a hit and miss for me. I didn't enjoy Column of Fire as much as I did, um, or actually I didn't enjoy um, World Without End as much as I did Column of Fire. Um, I'm looking forward to the, uh, the next one he's got coming out. Um, I loved his Century series. He took um, literally the 20th century, pre-World War I, up through Obama's election, and followed the developments of the Cold War, the two world wars, through the eyes of four families that were tangential to world events. Um, and I thought it was brilliantly constructed. Okay. So I was thinking of the Saxon Stories series or the Saxon Sagas uh, by Bernard Cornwall. There we go. I had to Google it real quick. Okay, but he, he, writes, he writes good historical fiction as well. Uh, given how far back he goes in time, there's a lot of creative license in what we think. So we know broad strokes, but you know the conversations we obviously don't know. Some of the intrigue, he's guessing and making it up for the plot. But it's it's well written. He did some stuff on the Civil War too. So that's that's pretty good. The American Civil War specifically. Yeah, um, so, yeah I I enjoy it. Uh, I like you know, when they do footnotes or end notes, I guess, at the back to sort of what's real and what's not, or at least a short little explanation of where they fudged. Um, because some people are going to read that and think it's the gospel truth and not know where the fact and the fiction lies. Oh, yeah. I worked um, as a... Um, go ahead. There's a great little piece that came out, I think it was in the late 70s. Um, it was called If the South Had Won the War. Yeah. Um, and it approaches... Uh, the Civil War from the perspective that Grant is killed during the Wilderness Campaign. So oh. as a result, the South wins Gettysburg, and we end up with three nation states on the North American continent. We end up with the, the United States, the Confederate States, and the Republic of Texas. Where did California fall in on that? Because I would have said California would be the third one. There was plans to start an empire and ally themselves with Mexico. Well, it, fell but it, it became the source of gold for, for so much um, and for the uh, North that it remained with the United States. You should dig it up. You can find it as a PDF out on the Internet at this point. Interesting. Interesting. I, I, I enjoy that kind of stuff. Um, so I, that's that's definitely something I'll have to check out. Um so what would be like speculative fiction is a wide umbrella that covers lots of things. Oh, yeah. So how did you come into it? If you're not a huge fantasy fan um, and you mostly read the historical stuff, which is great. I love that stuff. And you like um, more on the sci-fi. Like how did you discover the genre? Cause I'm trying to keep us off of the history because I could talk all day, but I don't know that our audience cares. <laughs> you were going to put them to sleep. Um, yeah, I um my gateway was adventure novels. Um, a guy by the name of Willard Price wrote a whole series of adventure novels that were set in Africa uh, and South America. Um, in high school, I got into Cussler. Um, Ooh, love that. The um, the Dirk Pitt books. Yep. Um, I mean, if you can get past the early misogyny, um, they're really great stories. Um, and I have had the pleasure of seeing him speak a couple of different times. I got him to autograph my copy of Raise the Titanic. 
Um, he's got some really great anecdotes about his early career that were just just fun to listen to. Um, I loved Clancy um, and the political intrigue of of his his character, and of course, you know Jack Ryan's a history teacher. So, yeah. Uh, um, wow. Um, trying to think, what was the first sci-fi? Well, I mean, I read Halderman and and Asimov and uh, Heinlein, and um, I mean, my, most people have not heard of it. My favorite Heinlein novel is is Friday, um, which is one that. Most folks, I mean, most folks focus on, on, um, ah, shoot, um, uh, the religious one, the kid from Mars, and I'm forgetting the name of it now. Uh, you talk about Space Cadet, Stranger, uh, Space, was it Mars? Stranger in a Strange Land. Yeah, Stranger in a Strange Land, something, is it The Moon is a Harsh Mistress was another good one. Yeah, um, no, I love Friday, uh, the idea of a cyborg that is exploring her own, you know, sense of self. Um, I loved Halderman's Forever War. I think I've read that four or five times. Um, I think that's that, that was probably my path in. I mean, I loved some of, um, you know, Asimov's shorts, iRobot, and then that collection. Um, I loved Foundation. Um, and I actually like the adaptation that Apple has done. I think they've been, they've done a good job of staying true to it. Um, I think that was my path to it. Okay. Um, did you read any of the um, trying to? Oh, uh, he did the um, Philip K. Dick. Did you read any of his stuff? He oh. was pretty big <laughs> back in the day. Hitchhiker's Guide. Yeah. Uh, he, he also did a lot of uh, short stories that he's he's the author famous for having the most of his content created in the movies because. Um, his short stories, like he did, um, well, Android the Schwarzenegger, Android, Android Electric Sheep. Yeah, which, which became the um, uh, no, no. He also did the one that became the Arnold Schwarzenegger one, where the fake memories on Mars. I'm trying to blank on the name. Oh, um, um, Total Recall. Total Recall. Yeah, that was that was another like. Uh, he he did lots of good good stuff that got converted. I, I enjoyed a lot of his short stories. Um. So I, I came into reading through short stories. Uh, my sisters were both in Girl Scouts, and so I was the tag-along uh, with my other sibling. And they basically stick you in a corner, give you a book, and say, don't bug us. It's kind of approach. Yeah. They were girls, and we were young boys. We didn't want to bug them at the time. That changes in a few years. but And so we, you know, I spent my time reading like the Reader's Digest versions of a lot of stories. So for me, that's why I, I published the anthologies. I'm pretty passionate about short content because sometimes that's the gateway to get people to read. Oh yeah, know? absolutely. So I, I enjoyed I enjoyed it. Um, when when you have time, do you still read some of that short content and uh, or short or? Because I guess you know what's a novel back then is a novella now. Um, I do, um, I do. Um, uh, when I want really good hard sci-fi, um, I love some of Howard V. Hendricks um, stuff. Um, Horizontal Future. Horizontal Fruit of the Horizontal Fruit of I'm, I'm butchering the title. I'm blanking on it. Um, he's got a novella out that'll blow your mind. Um, 
cities of the full moon. I knew Howard um, when I was in at at uh, Fresno State. His wife taught in the English department, uh, and he and I became friends. His stuff's way out there. It's 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 it is um, it's work to read, but it's rewarding work. Um, he's like reading Umberto Eco. I don't know if you read any of Eco's stuff. Uh-uh. Um, Umberto Eco wrote uh, Foucault's Pendulum, uh, Name of the Rose which became a movie with Sean Connery and uh, Christian Slater. Oh, and okay. Um, and they did an okay job adapting it. Um, uh, Umberto Eco was a linguist who wrote novels. And Name of the Rose, you'll be reading along, and it smoothly transitions between Old English and Old French and Church Latin and English and and it, and it follows and you can track um and it's again it's it's work to read but it's rewarding work um i highly recommend name of the rose it's a phenomenal read it's set in a 13th century monastery and it's a murder mystery okay um sounds interesting um and i would say hmm. I want you know we're going to have to do an episode on what what exactly speculative fiction is because I'm curious now whether alternative history would qualify and if we're guessing on the history, uh, where the line? I would think so, but it's definitely worth a discussion on what exactly qualifies. Could be fun, but like where the line because at a certain point in time, if you go back far enough, you're guessing on a lot of the day to day stuff. We know the big events. We know we could say the king was this person. This was their court. You know, I couldn't tell you what, you know, 12th Knight from the Right's name even is, unless he did something that got him in the official, you know, minutes, I guess, of the of the the court. But we write stories about them and we call it historical fiction. And, and what where does that fall? Is that is that considered just, you know, historical fiction? When does it become speculative fiction? Because we are guessing on a lot. I don't know. It's an interesting well, it's, interesting it, it becomes spec fiction, it becomes alt history when it deviates from, in my opinion, the academic record, um, when it deviates from what we know from peer-reviewed history. Um, uh, Pillars of the Earth by Follett is set in um, a fictional cathedral city during the wars of succession uh, between Stephen and Maud. Um, okay. Remember Henry, Henry and his heir die um, or Henry's heir dies in the white ship sinking in the channel. And, and there's the, the running feud between Stephen and Maud and, and who's going to succeed. And the main players, the political players that are abstracted from the Kingsbridge Priory, but engaged in it because the bishop's a political character, the earl is a political character. And they're involved in a periphery of whose army is fighting with who, where the succession is concerned. And that all impacts on this little cathedral city. Um, and that's none of that is, is peer-reviewed history. So it's all abstraction from what we know from the period. Um, yeah. Bridge doesn't exist. Um, but we know that... Um, um, you know, um, shoot, what's his name? 
the bishop that was killed, it was, his head was lopped, uh, his head was split open in his church, um, not Beckett. Um, anyway, that's an event as part of this story. Um, so again, phenomenal read. Um, and Follett does an amazing job weaving uh, culture and what we know and, and the political world around as it impacts this city, this community as it grows. He's the Archbishop of Canterbury. Yes. Um, is it 1160, 1170, I'm trying to remember. Yes. It's been a while. But yeah, Thomas Becker was the Archbishop of Canterbury. Canterbury Tales. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's definitely interesting to figure out because, you know, there's a lot once you go far enough back where we're, there is a lot of guesswork on the day to day. So anytime you're not writing about like the king or the queen or insert major political figure that was written about, it's all guesswork to a point. I mean, we could say, well, this is where they would have lived. But that's why I said the interesting where the line is. But you can extrapolate a lot. There are substantial portions of the Dead Sea Scrolls that are just day to day recording of trade. There are, you know, enormous True. sections of these tablets from Sumeria um, and cuneiform that are nothing more than, you know, this ship brought in these goods. So you can take that and extrapolate, you know, this is a trade center and, you know, build build a setting around it. You can, but that's why I said where the line is where that becomes alternative history, because at what point, like at what, um, that's like the sci-fi equivalent would be, where does speculating of if this, then that for technology, where does hard science fiction become, you know, hand wavy? Like at a certain point in time, you go far enough out or far enough back, you're guessing on a lot. And where that line is, is an interesting discussion. Well, sure. And I, you know, I like to try and I like, I like to try and set my science fiction as close to real science as I can. That said, obviously, my time travel story is all hand waving. Um, yeah. I actually had my plan was to follow Tunduska Deception um, with a time travel story that was rather tightly structured to what we know about science. Um, right. Terry Mixon, one of our favorites, um, blew me out of the water in a conversation. And I went, ah, crap. Now I got to go back to the drawing board on that one. Um, yeah. And it was all based upon, you know, one of the things that makes me nuts about much of time travel stories is they seem to forget that if we go back in time, the earth ain't here. Yeah. You're in a vacuum of space. So how do you account for that motion? And I thought I had accounted for that motion with the movement of planets and the sun and a time period and then terry went yeah well remember that sun is moving through a galaxy and that galaxy is moving so your number's off by a couple orders of magnitude and i went off oh. <laughs> he's good at telling other people what to do with their books that he would never do it himself <laughs> but uh before we get too far afield, we're going to pause for a moment. It's a blunt force segue where we shamelessly shill for the man. And today that man is me. So let's air that commercial and then we'll jump right into that Tunguska deception. Go for it. They came in peace, or so the aliens said. Here are 18 examples of their lies. Venture into the unknown with us. Who is out there? What will they want from us? Join us in the adventure of First Contact. 
Each story explores a different facet of aliens meeting humanity. By Contact This, a first contact anthology and read some of the industry's best storytellers today. All right, thank you for sticking with us through that commercial interlude. Uh, we appreciate that, dear listener. If you like short fiction, go check that out. Uh, I would greatly appreciate it. There's some really fun stories in there that don't get enough eyeballs on them. And uh, we had a million readers. I'd ask for a million more because I think they're that good. So for whatever that's worth, dear listener. I'll pimp my own story. There's a story in that anthology called uh, Fiddler uh, about a teenage kid in the back hills of Kentucky who find, who is digging up uh, Civil War artifacts and suddenly finds himself in the middle of that battle. Um, and there's aliens and other stuff. Go find it. It's a good story. Yeah, I enjoyed. The only problem is, is I've never met a short story I couldn't envision turning into a series. So for me, it's all about controlling yourself because uh, otherwise you get yourself in trouble and too much. And then you'll get the inevitable reader who like, you know, insert anthology. I really liked that story. Why don't you write that as a series? And I'm like, and then you hear new authors like, how do you come up with your ideas? I'm like, no, no, no. The question is, how do you turn them off? That is more my problem. And then, and then how do you focus on just one, you know? Two true stories. Um, Fiddler, I scribed out in a matter of a couple of days, the first pass of it. Um, my wife likes that story so much, she wants, she thinks it should be a novel. She wants me to write the novel. And because of the way it's structured and the open hooks, she says, it's a series for you. Go write it. I went, no, dear, it's a standalone. Um, the second short story I'll share with you is one that you published for me in uh, From the Ashes. Um, and I'm going to share this story. I hope you don't mind sharing it. No, not at all. You and I were texting online, chatting back and forth online. And, and I said, so what are you doing with your anthologies? And you said, well, as a matter of fact, I had an author back out on me. Do you have anything for, you know, post-apocalyptic? And I went, maybe. How long? And you went, eh, six to 7,000 words. And I went, okay. And when do you need it? Beginning Tomorrow. of Tomorrow. <laughs> you know, first of October. And this was the middle of September. And I went, okay, let me see what I can get for you. And I had started... I had started a um, an post-apocalyptic series back around 05, 06. And I was about halfway into the first book and went, what if I take this premise and instead of it being set on the California coast, I make my protagonist a college kid with no real life skills in the middle of BFE nowhere, Saskatchewan. Okay. And that's where Isteroids came from. I took that 10,000 word brain dump that I did back in 06, and I did a page one rewrite in two weeks. And about, you know, 10 o'clock on October 1st, I got an email going, Rick, where's my story? And I went, the first ain't done yet. And you got it at about 1030 that evening, I think. Yeah, it was it was a good one. I actually mine for that anthology for the contact this was Ishtar's Rising, and it's basically the uh, the premise that if you don't end one war right, you'll end up going back to that place. So World War One led to World War Two, the yep. first Gulf War led to the second. So I speculated that we'd go back to Iraq for Gulf War Three, and uh, and wrote about 
someone riding a convoy on some of the um, the most dangerous roads I drove on in my first tour in Iraq. So I basically wrote what I know and gave them slightly newer equipment. Um, and then they end up discovering one of the Sumerian gods, Ishtar, uh, except the gods weren't what they thought they were. So Ishtar's rising. I still get letters like, when are you going to write this series? So it's it's a lot of fun. Uh, that one, I actually don't know where I would go with it from that because in the, I don't know if this is a spoiler. Plug your ears, kids, if you don't want spoilers. They discover a spaceship that they, you know, fly home. The story's been out for a while, so I feel like we're safe. They end up discovering and conquering an ancient spaceship that was asleep. asleep. Not too um, uh, original, I know, for science fiction. But so your your results are, does the spaceship zoom out to nowhere and you end up BSG-style Battlestar Galactica trying to get home? Or or even, what was it? Was it Deep Space Nine that was in the, um, with the female captain? Yep. DS9. Yeah, where she's trying Voyager. to get home. No, it was Voyager, Voyager, Voyager. You get a Voyager, Battlestar Galactica type of theme, or you know, turn it over to the military. In which case, everyone that's involved is just stuck somewhere in Area Fifty One, never to see the light of day, as they're, you know, interviewed ad nauseum about whatever they found. Like at a certain point in time, like there's only limited directions if you want to stick with realism that that story can go. So I don't know, but it's it was definitely a lot of fun to write. So. Or you do what I did, and you have an event that happened in June of 1908 in the middle of BFE Nowhere, um, Siberia, and use it as a jumping off point for an alien crash landing. So the one way to get around it, and this is just me thinking out loud in general with stories, if I discovered a spaceship and I realized that the government's going to want to make this all secret because... Governments like secrets, and I want to make sure I don't get like mothballed into nowhere and hopefully live through it. I'm going to make that spaceship, if I end up in control of it, land in the most conspicuous space I can find White House lawn, Times Square, something where there's lots of cameras. And then when they watch me walk out of it, it's going to be harder to hide it. Um, and that's how I'm going to do it. I'm not landing, you know, in the middle of BF nowhere hoping for the best. Nope, I'm going to go big. Because otherwise, you know, you might not see home again. Yep. Yep. So, um, but anyway, so we're here not to talk about our short stories, but to talk about your novel. So first I'm going to show the cover. So what is the, um, give me a second. Uh, well, I can do better. I can show it big. So, so what's the story of this cover? Because it's not your typical sci-fi cover. It's almost hard to tell what it is, but you have a very specific reason for it. So I do. Um, the, and I was just hinting to it when we were talking about spaceships, um, uh, the Tunguska region of Siberia experienced an event. Um, we still don't really know what happened. Um, some of the theories revolve around a comet or a meteor or something skipping off our atmosphere and creating a compression wave that wiped out tens of thousands of miles of, of ancient forest in, in the middle of nowhere, Siberia. And because it was the middle of nowhere, Siberia in 1908, there are very few um, firsthand accounts uh, reporting of it. Um, the Russians, the Soviets didn't get around to sending a scientist to the region to actually investigate it until the late 20s. Oh, um, uh, so I take, I take a lot of license. Um, the, uh, 
the alien spacecraft that crashes happens because of a Tesla energy experiment that goes awry. Um, and the aliens that are now trapped here are a symbiotic relationship. They are sentient energy, require their hosts to be mobile, but their hosts are damaged beyond repair, so they take human hosts. And the story follows the timeline of these aliens from the human perspective more than anything else in trying to navigate the notions of these creatures in my head and the time that they're in. And during the modern timeline, this story has two timelines, um, trying to evade the Russian spies, trying agents trying to get them, and the American government trying to figure out what's going on and other things. So it takes a lot of license with a lot of things, but uh, I'm told it's a fun read. So my bias is is probably well founded. Um, are you familiar with the symbiotes that they um, they cover and what that relationship could look like in the Stargate series? Oh, very. Was that uh, inspiration when you were writing this, or just coincidental similarities? Um, no, not really. Um, the 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 impetus of the entire story came from the bizarre notion uh, that what if aliens were here, but rather than being in a physical form, they were sentient energy. And what would that look like as far as having to have a host and if they were a human host? Um, and I started playing with that idea. I actually used that as a jumping off point for a NaNoWriMo project. Um, wrote 45, 50,000 words. I won that year, so I did 50 plus thousand words. Um, I'm part of a very active writers group. I took the prologue that I wrote, which is this inciting event, with what I thought were throwaway characters. And my writers group said, Rick, we're going to see more of these characters, right? And I went, no, 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 they're throwaways. The real story's over here. And they went, no, 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 Rick. We're going to see more of these characters, Rick, right? And I went, uh, okay. So I went back while I was working on the other timeline, and I thought long and hard about it. And the next year's um, NaNoWriMo project was that timeline and what those characters looked like. And then I wove the two stories together. So it's about a 100,000-word novel? Um, it's a little over 80,000. Okay. So – what was the impetus that made you like, okay, so let's start with what would be your 30 second elevator pitch for this novel and the series I presume that follows? Uh, it is not a series. It is a standalone. I left a couple of hooks in there that if I wanted to go back and do it, I could, but I don't have any plans to do that yet. Um, but the elevator pitch on this novel is, is, is literally just that, you know, um, we're obviously not alone. Um, the our protagonists, um, uh, Finn and Echo, uh, find themselves as hosts to two of these beings, and trying to navigate attempts on their life and find a way to get them to their rescue vehicle to get away from the planet. Okay. So. 
what made you decide to to turn this one actual historic event into something more? Um, well, that's interesting. Um, I had, I liked the idea of leveraging an actual physical disaster. Um, and I've always been fascinated by the Tunguska event. I always thought that it was really one of those really interesting unknowns. I've also been fascinated by things like super volcanoes. Um, the one in, in New Zealand, the one that's under Yellowstone, uh, the one that created a year without a winter when Krakatoa went off. Um, and and I it the, the Tunguska site created a nice inciting event for a long running essentially chase of aliens. Um, and I, I just, I had a lot of fun writing it. Siberia is the home of a lot of those sort of mystery type events. They've, um, the missing hikers that they still don't know what happened with in the eighties that mysterious death circumstances. Um, they've got, you know, remains that are discovered that they don't really know what to do with. How much of that is really the Siberia weirdness? Like, I guess the land equivalent of like the Bermuda Triangle. How much of that is uh, Russian incompetence at the time because they were just not focused on that. They were focused on the Cold War. How much of it's propaganda because we've both nations have lied to each other uh, in an effort to to push the Cold War. So I don't know. It's an, it's an interesting place to set a story. I think. I read a really interesting pandemic novel um, during the pandemic, um, and it um, it ended up wrapping up on an island off of Siberia, um, uh, up in 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 the Arctic. Um, and I wish I could remember the name of it. Um, it was written by, uh, I think, a journalist uh, who follows medical issues. God, if I think of it, I'll, I'll shoot you a note. Yeah, we'll um, throw it in the comments or in the um, in the show notes. Yeah, um, I'll make sure I find it and send it to you because I just teased everybody. Um, uh, but um, uh, th that, th that whole genre kind of fascinates me. Um, I was working on this story and um, for the last 10 years I had been the, or I have been, uh, the chief information officer for community college district um, in Los Angeles County. And I was having a conversation about the story I was writing with um, the then VP of academic affairs, who was an English professor. And I was talking about the event and she said, you know, there's a whole world of lore out there about that event and Tesla. And I went, really? Tell me more. And she says, well, my daughter's the junkie on that. So she sent me some notes and I took that and ran with it and used some of that internet lore or historical lore of, of Tesla's energy broadcast experiments, you know, the Wycliffe Towers and other things. Um, and it was the Tunguska event was a, te a, a, a Tesla experiment that went awry and accidentally brought down this uh, this alien spacecraft who was here for research. Interesting. I, I don't know. There's some whole interesting thought experiments you could do for alternative history on what happens if 
um, Eddington hadn't stolen all of the stuff he did from Tesla and where Tesla might have ended up instead of a bitter drunk at the end and what, what other ideas he might have brought to fruition that would have vastly pushed forward our uh, well, have, technological I have, timeline. I have a thin, thin Tesla timeline in this story that leads all the way up to his death. Did you continue with the uh, the reality where he was robbed? No, I continued with the alternate notion that he was a host for one of these aliens. Oh, so that's how he was getting his brilliant ideas. Interesting. Yep. And the he, he was the host for the ship's engineer. Makes sense. I'll buy that for a buck. Um do you plan on you said this is a one and done story, although if you know if there's a wild runaway success and people want more, you know, obviously you could get more. Do you plan on playing in this universe or are you going to move on to something else after this? Um, the next project I'm working on, I'm dusting off a post-apocalyptic series that I was playing with. Um, actually, the one that uh, Eisteroid came from. Okay. Um, in fact, because I now have the rights back from Eisteroid, thank you very much. Um, uh, it's going up as um, a promo giveaway uh, through uh, the 20 Books organization, 20, uh, 20 Books to 50K. And the right. uh, International Association of Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers, right. uh, authors, um, uh, um, Craig Martell um, drives that group and goes monthly through a number of different subgenres where they do promos with free books or short stories uh, to help build um, email lists and help authors build their brand. Um, and I've put, I've reformatted um, that short story as a little standalone ebook, and it's going up at the end of the month as part of that promo. Okay, so you know, getting back to the the tungsta tungska deception, tunguska deception. There we go. What um, what can you tell us about your main characters? Um, well, the the two. Uh, Entry-level main characters in the inciting event are um, a retired captain of the Tsar's Guard and his wife, who have been granted a vast plot of land in Siberia, uh, in the Tunguska, um, and he is the Count of Tunguska, um, and he and his family witness um, the event and, and become hosts for the first two three of the, uh, uh, of the aliens. Uh, the current timeline is a programmer who works for the NSA um, and a third-year medical resident who gets pulled into the intrigue when an attempt is made on uh, Finn Moffat's life. So if you're talking, if I remember correctly, you said the uh, early 1900s. So this would have been at the tail end of the czar even existing because you know he he's toppled after world war or during world war one um do you cover with that character what because a lot of the former czarists didn't fare so well in the uh soviet russia so is that addressed with that character or do you no, cut it the story not at all it uh the vignettes start with the inciting event and them coming to terms with the voices in their head um, primarily his wife. Um, uh, the next series of vignettes occur 
um, after the Civil War and the Soviet Union has established itself and it's as far as it's, uh, you know, Stalin's uh, Soviet Union at this point. And I, I leverage the ex expedition sent by the Science Federation uh, headed by a guy named Leonid Kulik. Um, and Kulik leads this expedition to the site. Um, uh, the early characters become guides for this expedition. And ultimately, Kulik ends up becoming a host. Um, and then later, those characters end up in other places. And we'll go with that. Okay. So the revolution, the whites losing, um, the fall of the czar, the fall of democratic Russia and the Duma, and the Soviets um, winning are all peripheral to the events around this community. Okay. Do you follow, like where, for your modern timeline, what do you consider, well, modern obviously, but like where do you, on a scale, of, on a chronology, where is modern? Well, in this case, it's current day. So obviously the USSR, the Wallace Fall, and all that stuff. So yes. how much of this research did you, I mean, did you have to learn Russian to do this research or? No. Did you so you relied on English sources for this? Um, I relied on my own past historical history. Okay. Um, my knowledge of Russian and Soviet history. Um, my knowledge of the Cold War and the space race. Um, I lived much of that. Um, I was born in 62. Um, so I remember the latter half of the Cold War, uh, certainly the fall of the wall, the rise of the Russian Federation. Um, uh, I was that nine-year-old, seven-year-old kid um, staring at the black and white TV when Armstrong and Aldrin stepped off the lunar lander, which started my fascination with space. I'm a space junkie. So I take advantage of some internet myths associated with the space race as well. Okay. Um, interesting. So what tech do you do you bring over from the aliens since they are, you know, energy-based creatures? Presumably they are there's some affinity of with technology and an interaction with it. So what level of tech, do you keep it historical and then they just they just know about more, the alien entities? Or do we see alien tech? You're going to hate me. I do absolutely none. Um, okay. Uh, and they're, they are a crew of four, and they are here on what they classify as a research mission following human development as a scientific endeavor. Um, our main characters, Finn and Echo, discover that Part of that endeavor is looking for new hosts for their race because their current race of hosts is generationally killing itself out and no longer compatible with them. Um, but that happens as a side story down the road. Um, they are, as far as our main characters are concerned, they are accidental hosts. You find out it's not quite so accidental. Um, because there is a quirk with our aliens and our human hosts that there is a uh, synaptic development with left-handed folks 
and some left-handed folks are compatible hosts and have the capacity to interact with them. Otherwise, the alien is just along for a ride in their meat puppet. Interesting. And left-handed folks are rare as it is. That's not the norm. They're about 10% of the population. And then if you're looking for a minutia, um, a portion of that portion, I mean, you're not talking a lot about a lot of hosts. No, you're not. So the, one of the scientists that's among these aliens is talking about genetic manipulation to try and enhance that. Okay. That sounds interesting. Um, it definitely. I mean, have you gotten any feedback from readers yet? I know you just published it about uh, asking those questions about like, when are we getting more? Cause there's definitely feels like there's a lot of meat left on the bone with this, this idea. There's, there's, there's a lot to be had. The aliens do end up leaving. Uh, spoiler folks. Sorry. Um, uh, There's, there's a lot of opportunity to revisit it. Um, the relationship between Finn and his alien um, has has a lot of potential. Um, you without giving too much away, there are a lot of opportunities for things like Greg Bear's um, Darwin's radio and the next iteration of human development. Um, if you've not read Darwin's uh, radio, um, I highly recommend it. Greg Bear did a phenomenal job with that story. Okay, I'll have to check that out. I'll add it to my many, many pages deep to be read list. Um, I'm constantly finding out more, finding more, and I've got a lot of books I, I've bought on Kindle that I still haven't read. I found there's a very vast difference between buying the books and reading the books. Because, oh, got, shiny, I've let got, me buy that, or it's only 99 cents. What? I can't pass that up. Oh, yeah. And then you buy books you never get around to reading. And then I've, I've managed to become one of Terry's uh, ARC readers. So every time one of the Empire of Bones comes out, hopefully another one's coming out soon because um, it's been a couple of years, um, and now his Last Hunter series. Um, I'm making sure I devour those and posting reviews, um, um, which is a really, really interesting series. I recommend it. Yeah, my, my half-sister did his, um, um, for Terry Mixon, she did his uh, Universe Bible, all the reading through after the fact, because he, he didn't plan that, and then there were some consistency issues, so he ended up hiring people to go back behind him and build a Universe Bible so he could you know, fix inconsistencies or explain them away. Yep. Yep. So, um, you can get away with a lot, though. Like I, I did that for Tim Taylor's Human Legion role, because I got the idea we would build the wiki for his universe. Man, building a wiki is a lot of work when you're not tech-savvy. And then oh, getting all the information and going through and reading all the books and taking all the notes of all the characters, et cetera, down to the most minute. And I found a couple discrepancies in equipment um, on hit on Terry or Tim Taylor's. But generally speaking, once you find them, you can always find a plausible uh, explanation on why that's okay. Oh, sure. And build it into a future book. And be like, oh, no, no, we covered that. We meant to do that. So that's the, but man, it's a lot of work to do that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah. Which is why I passed the buck to my sister and like, oh, he, if he's if he's willing to pay you, go have fun. <laughs> oh, absolutely! I'd love to go through that. 
Um, it's it's a fun. I take notes now. That that's the that's the danger when you're writing a world building, is how much of the world building was written pre and you never used. How much of it was written pre and you changed it and you forgot to update it. So now I don't record that kind of stuff till after. Well, until after it makes it into the book. Yeah, Isteroid Survivors is an alternate starting point for what I'm calling the Genesis Renewed Universe. Um, and that's the the opening novel I'm working on now. Um, I finished a first pass on it back in 07, 06. Okay. Um, tech has changed a bit, so obviously I have to do an update on the tech. And I've been trying to keep good notes on the universe I'm building and 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 what's been leveraged and what and how because as as the universe matures and what remains from the pandemic that creates this world um i'm gonna need to 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 really be very careful about what i leverage and what i let decay yeah that's the problem like i said you got so many ideas and what do you do with all i got more ideas than i got time so Yep. And uh, given that life is finite, that's probably will always be true for the creative types. Yep. I love the meme so. that goes around and says, you know, I'm, I'm not hoarding books. I want to make sure I have enough books if I have 173 years of being cloistered to read. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I've joked with some of the authors I like. I'm like, do you mind just taking a decade off so I could catch up with you? Because um, that's uh, some of those authors putting out those books so fast. I'm just like. Lori, my, my wife's been reading Terry's Empire of Bones series. Um, she got through book eight and then decided she need to, needed to take a break, but she'll go back to it again. Um, I she's, think she's a rabid reader. I'm up to book 11 or 12. I know the last one he published a while ago, I didn't finish, but I just opened up with some main characters and I just wasn't able to follow it in audio. I'm just, I don't know if I've just forgotten who they were or what. Um, I, I do that periodically and then I end up starting in the beginning again. And so I've read the first eight books, probably 12 times. Um, that's partly TBI and partly cause it's just, it's comfort food kind of thing. Oh yeah. So oh, there's yeah. a lot of room in that universe to explore too. Yeah. I've done, I've done that whole, that whole series a couple of times. Um, and, and we'll probably go back and do it again because he's done a really solid job of building a world around Jared and Kelsey um and the succession and it's just it's i think it's it's well crafted i mean even with jumping the shark on the alternate reality with the alternate kelsey but anyway sorry folks more spoilers i, I didn't find that jumping the shark it made sense and it, he didn't let it go too far afield that i remember but uh, i don't know that i read far enough where they resolved that and i know they did in later books no they haven't yet it's still it's they they only well i won't dive into in in into spoilers um i loved the uh, the the room full of alternate carls um oh yeah, yeah yeah that was fun that was a fun event and i, I like the way he explained it so uh we actually did go ahead no say and and I, I really have enjoyed the character development of carl i really have um He's got he's got his own series in him at some point, I think. He's got. I mean, I don't know that uh, the alternate uh, universe, the pin uh, pentagram, no pentagram, uh, 
starts with a P. One of the alternate kingdoms that he, um, he, he star kingdoms that they encounter. Uh, there's the offshoot kingdom. Pendergast, there we go. Like that could be its own series too. And if they explore oh, yeah. left where Terry's group went right, like that all works. Now the problem runs into is if he doesn't really have a map and it's just in his head, you could end up with contradictions. But he gets away with that by saying, change the frequency and each one can go dozens of places. Um, so like, I don't know. I just, there's lots of room to explore. He talked for a while about getting someone to co-write spinoff series, but it just didn't happen because he started writing for Cheney. Yeah. I had a conversation with him about um, his post-apocalyptic piece, Scorched Earth. Um, but our writing styles are just too different that it, it, it didn't mesh. So did you actually, um, did you actually get to the point where you were outlining or was it just a proposal? I was, I was, I was kind of sketching where I would like to go with a book two, taking the book one as a jumping off point and going with book two, because I really like, um, uh, the, the main character. I think there's a lot of opportunity with, with him and, and some of his, his tangential characters. Um, but it's, okay. it's not going to happen and that's okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot to manage, and you know he's got enough of his world. He's going to want to keep his finger on the pulse, so to speak. And you can only manage so much at once. Uh, oh, yeah. Only so many hours in the day. And I understand the Last Hunter series is paying his bills right now, so I get yeah. it. That's a good thing. Bill's Bill's got to be paid, and Donna needs new shoes, so yeah, he's got to so, do what his wife tells him to. Yeah, I'm looking um, at the Genesis Renewed series to probably be a five, maybe a six book series. Um, and I've got a couple of other loose outlines of some other things I want to write as well. So I may may or may not plow through that in one run. I may break it up and, and then come back and revisit. I don't know. Yeah, I have I have the Project ADD thing going on all the time. So I'm constantly fighting to keep on track one at a time. So, But, you know, we've been at this for a little bit. And I don't want to get too far afield because we, we've been having a fun conversation. So I hope, dear listener, you've enjoyed it. But if you wanted to circle back to the Tunguska deception, uh, give us your your convince them to read it pitch at the end. So that way, you know, we can circle back to what brought us here. Link to the story will be in the show notes. Uh, sell the reader one last time on this series. Oh, it's just I think it's it's a great little sci-fi adventure. Um, it's it's got uh, uh, historical fiction. It's got Tsarist Russia. It's got uh, Russian spies and Tesla. Um, it's got alien possession and uh, internal dialogue arguments that will make you go, huh? Um, and and again, at the end, it's got opportunities for more. Um, and I'm eager to hear what people think about it. So is there a chance you're going to turn this cover? Because we circling back, that cover was from the actual event, the image yeah. of the forest. Is there any chance to get a, a more vibrant version of the of that image to uh, to make it pop? Because that's kind of it, it blends are, in together. There are there are only a handful of of pictures of the area, um, and all of them come from um, the Koyak expedition in the late twenties. Um, I I kind of like uh, the muted background um and and the the mystery it kind of creates 
maybe this is just me being colorblind, but the reading, the the titling, the wording on that is kind of hard to see. Yeah, are you a are you a a, a red colorblind? Uh, I am technically red green colorblind, but I have what they call a color dif differentiation disorder, meaning I only see the primary colors uh, and uh, shades shades of whatever mess me up all the time. Um, yeah, the original photograph for this is in sepia. That actually, if you did sepia in black and white or black for the the print, that actually might pop more. Because that's this, I can see daguerreotype style imagery, like the pictures from like that that tan ish vibe. Like I can see those. It's the whatever color you use for the writing blending in. It's the problem for me. Yeah, it and it's it's all red. It's all vivid red. Yeah. Um, so interesting. Uh, so you should weigh in, dear listener, in the comment section where we share this over on the Facebooks or uh, on any of the video platforms or audio platforms. Where, Well, if you're audio platforms, you're not seeing the cover. But uh, once you check the cover out, you should weigh in and tell us what you think. And maybe it's just me and my colorblindness. Um, tell them if you think uh, the cover would pop better with black writing. Um, but the uh, the art is the art because he likes that it's the actual event. And I, I dig that. Um, I might have hired an artist to do a rendition of that in uh, in high def, but there's something to be said for quaint and uh, and original. So, well, um, I've, I've had some Photoshop skills, and I played with a number of ideas, like converting it to, you know, um, a grayscale sketch. Yeah, uh, but in the end, when I started doing the overlay and the fade, I kind of liked it, so that's what I stuck with. Works for me. And if you're curious about the uh, the Empire of Bones, that is episode 11. We did a book review um, of the Blasters and Blades. So Are check that out. It's 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 worth uh, worth listening, worth reading the books. Veronica Jaguer, who's been a guest on the show, she was one of our first um, narrator profile stories, and that was um, she's the narrator for those books. So with that being said, all of those links will be in the show notes. But Rick, how can listeners and viewers find you on the wild, wild interwebs? Oh, well, the easiest way is rickshaw.com. I am uh, www.rickshaw.com. I've owned the domain since 94. Um, nice. Back in the wild, wild west days. It was a site for my consulting business for a long time before I turned writer. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. Uh, but you can start with rickshaw.com and it'll get you there. And uh, all of his sublinks are linked on his website. So it makes it really easy to find. Just click the hyperlinks from there. Um, all right. You can find us, dear. Oh, well, first off, before we say that, any plans on getting this in audio <laughs> for those that prefer audiobooks? I'm looking at, uh, at the ACX revenue share model. Um, and we'll probably start trying to um, uh, audition uh, narrators soon. Um, I have a son who's very interested in voice work. I've got four boys, um, and I've got uh, an adult son who's very interested in audio work. He may end up doing my future books, um, but this one to get it out in audio, because um, I think it needs to soon, um, I will probably follow the ACX um, revenue share structure. Okay. All right. And then as we bring this home, you can find us over on Linktree backslash Blasters and Blades podcast. Again, Linktree, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E backslash Blasters and Blades podcast. That'll link to our BitChute and our Rumble. Uh, YouTube does not like when we link to them. So we figured a, a workaround. It's also got all of our other links. 
We are on Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. Um, we are emailed at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. Again, blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. I promise we answer those. I check those at least every other day that, uh, that email. Uh, so if you have recommendations, questions, etc., that works. We have a Facebook page where you can find us. Just type in the name, but we don't have a dedicated URL yet. I am not the owner that is Doc, so I don't know what's required for that. But at some point in time, we will get that scored away. Um, look how long it – I mean, I think it was a, a year and a half where I said, we'll get to BitChute and Rumble eventually. Um, speaking of those platforms, our new listeners over there, we are glad you found us. We're glad that you're enjoying the show. So uh, don't forget to, to join us and, and talk to us on the, on the places. Um, we are on Facebook at facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. Again, backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. That's where all the shenanigans happen. You can join the discussion and make recommendations, poke the authors, bug Doc Seska about the horrific crime of pineapple on pizza. There's all the opportunities available to, uh, to join the chaos. Uh, or you can... Agreed. Agreed. You can join us on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters tack and tack blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades. Whereas for as little as 99 cents a month, you could help support the show and keep the lights on. These episodes are not free to produce. There is some overhead expenses involved right now. I eat those costs, but if you want to throw a couple bucks our way, we would greatly appreciate you defraying the costs. Um, or you could support the show more directly over at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. For, um, be sure to put in the comment section that it's for the podcast. And I promise I will keep my co-hosts, Doc Saska and Nick Garber, duly caffeinated. They will drink till their liver explodes. I think it's their liver that processes that stuff. I really should consult a biologist. I am not one. Uh, and with that, with that being said... Thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For the absentee Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am Jared Hanley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom and route. Thank you, Rick, for stopping by. We were all over the place. We're still trying to find our footing on this new, more free-range uh, template model we're using. So uh, we appreciate you being patient with us. Oh, no. I'm happy to come back. We need to do the old history conversation. Love to. We really do. And what spec fic is. That's on our list. We're making a list of all the topics we want to cover for this new template. Oh, we, we, so we, it should we, be we fun. Need get, we need to get Mixon and me and a couple of others in here and let us have fun. Absolutely. We'll have to put that together. All right, people. Thank you again for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs>